Hey there, welcome to night school, Friday night, night school, Friday night, night, Friday night, night. It's different than just Friday night. When you got two nights in there, it's a little different. But, uh, you know, I'm in a different room than I've typically recorded in lately. Actually, I used to only do episodes in this room. And now I'm doing an episode for the first time in this room in a long time. And, you know, and the room you're in is important. I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know, but it is amazing how just the way you think is impacted by the room you're in. That's why I always announce it. That's why I'm always like, I'm doing this one from the kitchen. I'm doing this one mobile. I'm doing this one from the couch. I feel like, you know, your your brain works differently depending on the chair you're sitting in, depending on the room you're in, depending on the weather. Um, depending on which day of the week it is, what time of year it is, everything, everything matters. I was talking to my friend Kyle about, you know, he's, he's definitely on a quest, you know, he's on a a spiritual quest for sure. And, you know, I think it's, it's coming naturally to him, but he also is pursuing a lot of, uh, you know, he's digging in, he's, he's reading a lot. And so we've been talking about that for the past month or so, maybe a little more. I don't know. Time. I, I remember I remember time. I don't know what it is anymore. I don't know what time is anymore, but I remember it. I don't remember time anymore. I don't even remember what it is. Uh, but just talking to somebody else who's going through that, because, you know, you, you have these people that you talk to about these things. And even the people who you can talk to about those things, you don't always talk to them about it, you know, because sometimes just talking about life is that sometimes just talking to a friend about life is that thing. I mean, that's the way it is with my friend uh, Miles, where it's like we both had these kind of spiritual epiphanies and synchronicities, synchronicity that uh, we both experienced around the same time, and it was interrelated. And But it's like we don't really talk about that, you know, because I, mean, I think you do reach a point where it's just life itself is that. Life itself is the altar that all of that leads you to, and uh, there's there's something there's an altar beyond life itself. But as a living, breathing human being, the alt the the largest altar that it seems like we can actually acknowledge and interact with, at least regularly, is life itself. But talking to my friend, you know, he's he's talking about you know the feeling of uh, talking about individuality. You know, because what leads you down a spiritual path is often an individual desire. You know, it's it's something that you as an individual want to do. And for many people, and myself included, you know, your interest in that subject matter, while a lot of it feels like you're not... Again, it goes back to the thing I was saying yesterday about friends, where it's like, I don't really feel like I chose my friends. I feel like there's an element of fate to that. And... Uh, you can choose to accept or deny fate, to fight fate, fight fate, fighting fate. You know, you, I think you can choose to accept those opportunities or deny those opportunities, but it does still feel like some kind of fate. And I mean, I think the spiritual path feels that way for most people. I think everybody who actually goes down it would agree on that point, where it doesn't really feel like you had a choice. Yeah, there were opportunities that you could deny, there are opportunities you could accept, but uh, even just having those opportunities doesn't feel like it was part of some, something that you chose. 
Um, but uh, the it, it oh, oftentimes it is your desire to bec- uh, it, it often it does come from some desire to express yourself as an individual. And I know that when I first started getting interested in, interested in esoteric music, interests, ideas, you know, part of that was a desire to be an individual. Not an attempt to be cool, because it's not like those things impressed anybody that I knew at that time. Like, there was nobody in school. Like, yeah, my friends, you know, they were into stuff too. But it's like, not. it wasn't something that I could really get into. If anything, like, the stuff that I personally got into, let's say, in high school, wasn't stuff that was going to make my immediate friends, or even potential friends, say, Oh, look at him, isn't that cool? It was actually, even even among like the weirder people I knew, it was stuff that they didn't necessarily care about. They were on their own trip. They were, you know, wanting to express themselves as individuals too. And so I don't look at that as an attempt to be cool, although, I, you know, you do want to feel cool. You, you yourself want to feel cool. So the desire to be more of an indi- individual or to go further and further on a path that is individual or unique, it does come from a desire to feel cool, even if it's just like your own inwardly radiating coolness. Inwardly radiating... Oh, in- are you talking about inwardly radiating coolness? So a lot of that's part of it. But the funny part about that is when that path leads you away from individuality. Because for me personally, it was like the further I went along into the esoteric, the strange, the just plain old rebellious, I guess for lack of a better word, the more that I wanted to rebel against my individuality. And not to become the most normal person in the world, whatever that is, but just to rebel against that desire to be unique, to almost cherish the completely mundane. And not just the mundane in the same way that I'm talking about life being an altar, because that's a form of that. I mean putting really normal people and normal interests on a pedestal, being like, that's actually the thing that's um, cool. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know that that's the right word. It's hard to, it's incredibly difficult to put these things in words, first of all. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, you, I think that the further you go along a strange road, the more that familiar things the more I think you start to understand the value of familiar things and what's more familiar than the things that you consider completely normal, the things that are all around all the time. And so I, I think that's part of that process is you, you rebel against your own individuality. You rebel against your own desire to be unique. And even if it's not about you, you rebel against the unique things that you come into contact with. Not reject. I mean, there's diff- that's a thing that's it's it's an important distinction here. There's a difference between rebelling and rejecting. Rebelling means giving some pushback, but it doesn't necessarily mean pushing it away. And that's something that's important to keep in mind with like political rebellion, social rebellion. Are you looking to completely reject that thing? 
Or do you just want it to change? You know, with people throwing out ideas like revolution, with that being such a hot topic in the last year, revolution, revolution, that's with a B. (laughs) So stupid. Revolution. (laughs) Come see my band. (laughs) We're called revolution. Um, We're called rebel pollution. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, no, you know, with, with the revolution getting thrown around and all that, you know, a good question to ask is like, are you looking to just change the thing or are you looking to reject it completely? And for me, like when I, you know, in, in being somebody who, yeah, at the end of the day, like I want to carve out my own niche, especially, you know, for so many years of my life growing up, it was like. I kind of went in and out of that too. I look at I look at certain eras of my teenage years where especially like getting to junior high, like I went through a short phase where I was like I'm going to I'm just going to dress like the uh, every normal kid. Like like I remember like I remember being like a rebel as a elementary school kid, like thinking of myself almost as a little punk for a while. And then like spending a year in junior high like wearing more uh what would be called preppy clothes, you know, things like that. And, you know, being more interested in the mainstream. I guess that's what I'm looking for. The word would be mainstream. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with something that's mainstream. But you just have to know what it is. You know, you you recognize it for what it is. And I don't think that the mainstream is inherently bad. You know, and, and I think that's... It's, it's important to recognize, even if you're not interested in things that you consider mainstream, you know, I don't think that things that are mainstream are inherently bad at all. Uh, and uh, they they are what define you as an individual anyway. Who would you be if you are somebody who wants to be unique or individualistic? You wouldn't be that without the mainstream providing counterpoint, without you reacting to that thing responding to that thing it doesn't really matter if you're reacting or responding because either way you're you're revolving in so many ways around that thing and how unique can you be if your individuality is in direct response to things that you consider normal or mainstream how unique can that be and maybe that's why we see so much manufactured rebellion marketed rebellion, marketed individuality, branded individuality. I think the reason we see that so often as another form of trend is because it's almost always attached. There's a ball and chain and, and, you know, it's, it's attached to these mainstream things that it's rebelling against. So the idea of being an individual or being unique but not as a form of counterpoint to what you consider normal or mainstream, leaves you with very few points of reference to do that with. You know, what are you, what are you going to do? If, you don't, if you're not measuring your own individuality or uniqueness against other people who you consider normal, you consider mainstream, what do you have to measure it against? Well, you can measure it against yourself. And maybe you don't need to measure it against anything or, you know, you can just allow yourself to be. And so I think that's part of the spiritual process is realizing that, yeah, you might have a desire to be unique. Some people have that more than other people, clearly. Clearly, some people in our world 
have more of a desire to express themselves as individuals than other people. And the shortcut to that is to just constantly be the opposite of what you think normal is. But as I've said before, the logical conclusion of that is to be a pedophile or a serial a serial killer. I had that realization at one point where I was like, oh, if you value rebellion for rebellion's sake, the logical conclusion of that is just to be everything that society rejects, which is not artists and nerds. Society actually loves those things. A lot of, you know, uh, those things, uh, society has a place for those things. But the logical conclusion of rebellion for rebellion's sake is to be a monster. It's to be a pedophile. It's to be a serial killer. And so that's what you say to your kids when they start uh, trying to rebel. When your child says, Dad, I want to go to Hot Torpic. You say... You know what's going to happen if you do that? You're going to become a pedophile or a serial killer. Serial killer. That's what you say to your kid when they want to rebel. The logical conclusion, the logical conclusion of what you're doing is going to end up with you becoming a pedophile or a serial killer. So don't do it. No, but, um, or an alien. Because that's the other thing is like, if you just want to be an individual for the sake of being an individual, the other logical conclusion is just uh, might as well become an alien. Oh, you're trying to become an alien, huh? You're trying to become an alien? An alien? Uh, so at some point, though, it's like on the path of individuality, you rebel against individuality itself because you have to. You know, you have to. And... You could easily turn turn around and start fetishizing normalcy. I mean, I've known a lot of people who do that, and I've done it myself for sure. But it's like if you're ever if you've ever been involved in like niche subcultures where everybody's into you know weird stuff, dark stuff, artsy stuff, weird stuff, dark stuff, artsy stuff. No, but if you've ever if you've ever been around that a lot, in you know where a lot of the people you know are into that stuff. You'll find that the new subversive thing to do is to say, uh, I like Nicki Minaj, you know, something like that. And that's an easy trap to fall into, not because you shouldn't like things like that, not that you shouldn't like the things you like, but it's easy to fall into a trap where you're like, you're rebelling against rebellion. And by rebelling against rebellion, you're just back to, you know, total request live. If that's still around. But on a personal level, I mean, all that stuff is... All, when it comes to interests and stuff, all that ends up being so silly. Even though those interests are an expression of you. Your interest in those things is an expression of you or who you want to be or who you think you are or who you are. It might actually be who you are. I don't know. But to get into it on a more cerebral level or a spiritual level, it's like... Rebelling against even just the idea of yourself as an individual. Because I never once thought, I want to be connected to everyone. I want to see myself as more a part of the whole. 
I never had that thought growing up. I was always comfortable being somewhat solitary. Like, I always had friends, somehow. I don't know how. Sometimes I look back at my life and I think, how did I ever have friends? Constantly have friends. How was I, how would, how, how is that possible? (laughs) You know, I certainly didn't do anything to really encourage it. I certainly didn't do a lot to be likable, I guess. I don't know. And it's not me being hard on myself. I just look back and I'm like, how did I, how did I do that? But, you know, so I was never truly solitary in the sense that I was isolated from other people or, or completely rejected ever, you know, by my peers or anything. But I also didn't desire being more connected to humanity, to society. But at some point, you know, when you start to get a little too comfortable with your own individuality, at least for me, and there might be some pathology to it, I don't know, I don't care, but it's like, I was like, this isn't it either. And so just on my own personal level, I kind of rejected my own individuality. Just in my own head. Like, it's not even like I even did anything. It's not like I went and got new clothes. Because I never cared about, like, looking a certain way, really. You know, you go through phases as a kid and a teenager and all that. But as an adult, like, I've never, you know, I've never been someone who, like, is attached to any way of presenting myself or anything. But uh, it's just one of those things where you do that in your own mind. And that kind of kickstarted a process for me. Like, well, some of the things that I've experienced spiritually, maybe... I don't feel like I did anything to make those happen aside from simply being open to them when they did happen, to accepting them rather than rejecting them when opportunities presented themselves. But when I think about, you know, just deliberately rebelling against myself, never letting myself get too comfortable in any one way of of being, and all these things are luxuries, You know, I recognize that all these things are very self-absorbed, they're self-indulgent, and they're also luxuries because there are a lot of people who have never been in a position to think about that, to think, oh, I reached a point in my life where I, I, I needed to rebel against myself cerebrally, spiritually. You know, it is a luxury to be able to do that. But it also feels like a necessary luxury. I don't know who I would be now if I hadn't done that or, or I couldn't do that. Even even today, you know, I can do that. And any and anybody can do that. Even though it's a luxury, the luxury is even coming up with the idea of doing that. Because Because anybody can do it, you know, that means that it's not unobtainable. But it's it's one of those things where it's like even thinking of that as a possibility must mean you probably have too much time to think. Which uh, I think we all have, you know. So again, I don't know, I don't know that it maybe it's not a luxury. Maybe everybody has too much time to think. You know, there's starving kids in Africa. There's starving kids in Africa that that uh, can't think about rebelling against themselves as individuals and I bet that's true I bet I bet they can't I don't know but I think that's also an ignorant way of viewing uh, the entire spectrum of humanity because I think everybody can access that path in their own way 
And for one person, yeah, it might be just rebelling against yourself as an individual. And for someone else, it might be just sheer survival that kickstarts that. I don't know. People the world over throughout history in all kinds of circumstances have had epiphanies. They've experienced spiritual sensations. They've gone down that path. So I don't think that it has to happen any one particular way. But anyway, as, I, as I've gotten older, I have wanted to connect. I guess that's where I'm getting at here is like as, as, some, as you get older, it's like you think like, you know what, I do want to feel like I am connected to everybody. And I don't want to do that by like, I don't want it to be a superficial thing because I know I can't just get a makeover, a mental makeover that makes me feel more like other people. I know that alcohol helped with that, helped and it hurt, but I know in my case, being able to go out and just drink with people as an adult, it was a cheat code, you know, because you feel a lot more connected to a larger group of people, to more people. You have common ground when you're sharing a bottle. And that was one of the big appeals for me of alcohol. Not anxiety. It had nothing to do with, like, lessening my anxiety. I know that's an appeal of alcohol for a lot of people. It wasn't about anxiety. It was about connection. And, you know, weed for me was always way more solitary. Alcohol was solitary, too, you know, in a lot of, a lot of ways. But it was also something I used socially. But weed, I never, I never enjoyed, like, sitting around with groups of strange people getting high friends sure but not strangers but alcohol you know I didn't mind it at all I would do that a lot you know drink with people go to parties hang out at the bar meet friends of friends talk about all kinds of stuff who knows what but that facilitated connection that wasn't available otherwise not to say it wasn't available but it sure didn't seem available But that didn't create a lasting feeling. You know, that didn't create a lasting feeling of connection for me. And you wake up the next morning and you don't feel all that connected to people. (laughs) You know, you wake up after a long night of drinking. You don't necessarily feel, you certainly don't feel as connected to the people you were hanging out with the night before. You know, you can form bonds with people that way. It's not that it's artificial. It's not that it's all temporary. But, you know... You're using it's it's the same way I feel about psychedelics as I've talked about where it's like you're using this material substance to facilitate an experience and it's not that that experience isn't important to some people or cool it's not that that experience can't do things but to me that's not how I want to access those ideas and sensations. And the same could be said for alcohol, where it's like alcohol facilitates a certain experience, but I would prefer it if I don't have to rely on this liquid to do that. In the same way that I never wanted to rely on a mushroom. A mushroom. A mushroom. I never wanted to rely on that. And so while there are things that can facilitate certain experiences, they can you know, alcohol can facilitate a connection to people. It's not that it really does, you know, it's not that it really does what you're, it it doesn't help you achieve 
what you ultimately want. And I wouldn't be able to tell you what led me to that, except that I I did make a choice at a certain point when an opportunity presented itself to not hate people, for one. Because it's not like I went around, I never considered myself a misanthrope. But it's like even just being in traffic, you know, on the, in these practical ways where it's like somebody does something you don't like and you hate them for it. Where it's like somebody, some guy's cutting people off. You see him on the highway. He's going 90 miles an hour in a sports car. He's weaving through traffic like a psycho. And he's cutting people off. He's not using his turn signal, which is the worst crime of all for me. If you're going to weave through traffic at 90 miles an hour, putting people's lives at risk, okay, that's one thing. Not using your turn signal, bad, bad news. Bad, bad news. Use the turn signal at the very least. Uh, But, you know, my reaction to that at one point, uh, uh, many points throughout most of my life, was like, oh my, can you believe this asshole? asshole. Can you believe this guy? I'm going to be mad about him long after he's out of my sight. Probably going to be mad about a lot of things today because of that guy. But I had an experience where, like, after I, you know, deliberately started thinking differently. After I took those opportunities when they presented themselves to change my mind. Because there is, like I said, there is an amount of choice to this. It's not all just fate. It's not all just being on a, you know, a track. You do make choices. But I had an experience where I saw a guy doing that, and I just laughed. I just, I I broke up into laughter. Because I was like, look at that guy doing that. It was as if I had never seen that before. It was as if I had no idea what he was even doing. And just the the physicality of this like guy in a vehicle, a convertible. I think I remember it because it was a convertible. And just seeing like, that guy is so stupidly aggressive. And thinks what he's doing is the thing to do right now. And, and, and it's, it's so dangerous. And I'm not going to be laughing if he causes an accident. You know, I'm not going to be laughing at horror. But in that moment, rather than being mad and knowing I couldn't change what he's doing, knowing that I couldn't, like, me being mad is not going to change what that guy's doing in traffic. And in fact, if I honk or do something or if I, you know, hit the gas to try to, like, speed up next to him and give him a piece of my mind, that's just going to encourage him because that guy's looking for that. And you know what that guy's doing? He's trying to be an individual. What that guy is doing, who is weaving in and out of traffic, he is expressing his individuality. Because like I said, the logical conclusion of individuality for the sake of individuality, rebellion for the sake of rebellion, is being a pedophile or a serial killer or a maniac on the road. Not that those things are all the same, but you can see where all those things are dangerous. A maniac. He's a maniac on the road. But you can see where that's what that guy's doing. He's expressing his individuality. He's rebelling for the sake of rebelling. Because he he doesn't need, you know, he's not trying to get to the hospital to save a loved one or to see a loved one before they die. Someone who's doing that didn't just get a phone call saying... Mom's in the hospital and she's about to die. You better get here to say your last words. Like, that's not what that guy's doing. 
Chances are he has plenty of time to get where he's going, but he's just, he's got some male aggression to get out, you know, and, and you can get that out through your car, I guess. You can try to. But he also, he wants to be different than everybody else. The mainstream thing to do in that situation is to follow traffic laws. The mainstream thing to do is just to, you know, be in gridlock traffic. Because that's what everybody's doing. Everybody's following the rules. But that guy, he somehow sees himself as exempt from that. And he's he also has a desire to express himself. He feels cool doing that. He feels like he's fighting something, rebelling against something. He's rejecting everything else that everyone else is accepting. But not being like brutally angry about that was a change for me. Because I guarantee you I would have spent a long, I would have spent the whole drive thinking about that guy. And I had a moment where I saw that happening. And, you know, and I can't bank on that. You know, I, I will, I, I'm telling you right now, I'm t- uh, let me tell you, I will be mad at traffic again. I will be mad at traffic probably sometime soon. But just that I was allowed that one moment at all and that I can take that moment with me as a general approach to traffic. And it's not something I have to force myself to do. Like when I burst out laughing at that guy weaving through traffic, it wasn't that I for it wasn't like I'm in a fake laugh. I actually legitimately broke into laughter because I was so detached from my normal perception of that kind of thing, that kind of action that somebody would do, that it was hilarious to me. And then I afterward I was like, wow, that's that's a change. So it's that sort of thing. You know, it's it's those sorts of moments where you you realize you've had a breakthrough of some kind. And you don't want to rest on it. You don't want to think I've beaten the game now because I laugh at assholes in traffic. I laugh at the jerks who are putting people's lives at risk. I've beaten the game. But, uh, you know, you get on these this road where it's, you know, you know, because it is kind of like a Zen koan, 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 koan brother. It's kind of like a Zen koan brother where, you know, a lot of Zen koans are, are based around trying to reconcile or let go of contradictions or hypocrisies. Or ideas that you can't quite comprehend. I mean, obviously the cliche one is, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? You know, thinking about not thinking. You know, those are the sorts of ideas that fuel Zen koans. These sort of, you know, meditating on contradiction is is a big theme in all of that. And either letting go of it, or reconciling it, or simply not doing anything at all, and being fine with that, are some of the ways that you can approach a Zen koan. And I, I do see the the road of individuality, and the desire to connect with the whole, whether that whole is the species, or that whole is the planet, all species, all life all objects, all material, or whether that whole is truly everything. doesn't really make a difference. Having a desire to connect to something that's larger than your idea of yourself as an individual and using individuality to get there. 
using your own desire to be an individual who does things your own way, who carves out your own niche, who expresses yourself uniquely, the idea that that's going to get you to the whole, that that's going to make you feel a part of the whole. Yet that is part of it, at least for me. That was, is, I think it'll always be a part of it, where you have a desire to be an individual, then you rebel against that desire to be an individual. But when you rebel against your own individuality for long enough, you're back to wanting to be unique again. But you've moved forward a little bit. You've inched along. You've moved forward in some way that you can't even necessarily measure. But you do have these breakthrough moments where you realize something has changed, even if it's incremental. Sometimes it is a breakthrough moment, whether it's laughing at somebody in traffic or something else. Because the amazing thing about that experience, and you know, I don't want to go on about it for too long, but the amazing thing about laughing at some terror freak, at some traffic terrorist, a terror freak, <laughs> uh, the thing about laughing about that guy is I didn't feel any hatred toward him. And on one hand, I felt connected to everybody. I felt like I was on the same page, to go with that phrase that I've been using. You know, I felt like I was on the same page as all of the normal people following the rules of the road. I was on the same page as them, and that guy was not on the same page as us. But you know what? He didn't feel like he wasn't us either. Like, even though he was expressing his individuality, even though he was putting people's lives at risk, really, you know, I didn't feel like he was necessarily separate from us. Even though I was on the same page as all of the other people obeying traffic, and I would have preferred, excuse me, sir, I would prefer it if you would follow the rules of the road just like we are. But I also didn't feel like he wasn't us. And I think that's why I was able to laugh at him. And, you know, for all I know, maybe I was laughing with him. Laughing with him. Maybe he was laughing maniacally. Because he was Tex Avery, the Tex Avery wolf that I love so much. The cartoon wolf just banging into cars, causing havoc. But that was an interesting thing about it is I didn't feel like he wasn't us. And I did feel like there was an us. And you know what? I don't like driving on the freeway. I'm, I'm terrified of the freeway. I think the freeway is insane. Driving at super high speeds with a bunch of other people who are distracted, who have all kinds of different conditions, cognitive ability, who are on stuff, who are, who are taking things, even even if it's just medicine, even if it's just somebody took Benadryl, not to mention all the other things you can take. You know, I think the freeway is absolutely terrifying. So for me to feel like an, there is an us to that and that even the guy who is deliberately causing havoc is also part of that us that's pretty that's a pretty big deal to me and it's again it's not something I can rest on I can't necessarily take that feeling for granted but to even feel that once is a breakthrough and so to go back to what I was saying a second ago about you know feeling like you're part of the whole but getting there, in part at least, through your own desire to be an individual or to be unique. And I mean, it gets into Carl Jung and individuation and 
I, I don't, I'm not even going to get into that because I don't even feel like I can explain it. Or I, I don't even really think of it. I don't, you know, I, while I think that's a very interesting idea and it's relatable for me, it's not something that influenced me necessarily. But I think it does it relate to this. You know, I think um, Carl Jung's idea of individuation definitely relates to what I'm talking about. Because in discovering who you are as an individual, that's the only way you can discover who you are as part of the whole, and that's the only way you can discover the whole, is through yourself. But what's interesting is right now, it's the first time in a long time that I don't feel like I'm looking for a sensation or an experience. I don't feel like I'm seeking anything right now. I definitely want things to happen. I, I would say I need certain things to happen on a practical level in life. But right now, I don't feel that I am seeking anything larger than that. And that's big for me to not feel that way right now. To not be looking for some sort of information, for some sort of sensation or epiphany or synchronicity, some sort of stimulation. Because I for years now... I've been looking for all that. I'm reading things constantly. I'm paying attention to things. I'm trying to cultivate that, you know, and not in a forced way because you can't force it. But it is something that I, I feel like for years now I've been constantly looking for. And lately I've had this feeling where I'm like, you know, I'm not seeking anything like that. Not that I don't want it. Not that I'm not open to it. But for once in a long time, I just feel like I can sit here with what I have mentally, spiritually, physically. And I'm not looking to necessarily change that. I'm not looking to revolutionize that. I'm certainly not looking to reject anything. I'm open to change. I'm open to newness. But I'm not fine. There's nothing for me to reject right now. It doesn't mean I can't do better. I mean, this isn't even about me. This isn't even about my conduct as a person. It's just about what I want. Uh, but it's it's an interesting feeling at the moment to, to just recognize that, to be like, you know what? I'm not hungry for something. But if something comes to me, I'll, I'll be more than happy to take it. Because I, I look back at, you know, September 19... Uh, September... 2019 was a really crazy month for me because I'd already been on the trip I'm on for a while at that point. Like I'd already been, I'd been meditating for, you know, a year and a half, maybe at that point. I'd already gotten deep into some of the subject matter I'm in for, you know, quite a while, but I'd gotten even deeper into it. And I spent that entire month pretty cut off from everything. And it was all just fitness and spiritual discipline. And I was meditating multiple times a day for long periods. Meditation was really taking me somewhere far deeper than I even knew. You know, it was taking me somewhere far deeper than I'd previously known. You know, not like again, I'd only been doing it for a year and a half. I'm not some veteran. But uh, I thought it, I thought it had already taken me certain places. And that particular month went even further. And, you know, I was also just reading, like, all my spare time, like, I was, while I was eating, I would have my laptop open, and I would just be, like, consuming 
Buddhist subject matter, Buddhist cosmology. I was on Wikipedia. I was reading books. I was trying to take in as much as possible, and I felt this internal pressure to do that. Not a bad pressure. Not the kind of pressure you feel when you're the last person to finish a test in school, and even though you have time to finish it, the fact that everybody else is done already makes you feel like you screwed up somehow, and you're just like, I gotta finish this, I gotta finish this, everybody else has turned in their test. Not that feeling, but still some kind of internal pressure, like I need to be spending every possible waking second studying. And that's what it was. It was studying. You know, like I said, I was reading some books, you know, even just with the computer. You can get valuable newsflash. You can get valuable information on Wikipedia. You can get valuable information on there. You have to be careful. You don't want that to be your only source. Um, but uh, you can get valuable information on there just in your downtime even. Like I said, I would just be eating. I would I would be in between, you know, other things and I would just be eating and I would be looking at that. Looking at other things, looking at other websites, looking at just, I was consuming as much information and something was going on with me. And that was an interesting month because I was seeking something. And it's not that I was expecting some sort of outcome. I just knew that I had to be consuming information. You know, I was having epiphanies as well, you know, and it was just an interesting month in that way because I knew that I had to spend that month doing that. And right now I don't feel that way at all. You know, I've been reading a lot lately, but nothing of a spiritual nature. My friend is sending me little excerpts of things, but he's he's on his own thing. You know, he's definitely on his own thing, and, and that's very clear. I mean, because that's the thing, is even though you have these confidants, even though you have people that you can talk to about these things, you're on your own thing too. And I had an experience, last night I, I randomly started watching this video, it was of a monk, who funny enough, he's a doctor. It's like Dr. Dr. Fan, P-H-A-N, Tong, I don't don't remember his name, but he was talking in a a sangha, you know, Buddhist sangha to a bunch of people, and I started the video, and it just showed the audience, and it was a bunch of people kneeling, it was a bunch of people, like, in, you know, meditation posture, lotus lotus position, the lotus position, you know, and... I immediately was just like, no. I immediately felt... (laughs) I immediately did not like what I saw because what I saw was like everything I try to avoid, which is... You know, I just got a feeling from these people. They were very decorated. Not the monk. You know, I understand that a monk decorates himself for a reason and, you know, all that. But it was like, just looking at the people in the audience, it's like they had such a look about them, both their their faces, their bodies, their clothes. And, you know, I, I was just in full-on judgment mode. And I knew that I was, and I was trying not to be, but I couldn't help but feel this way. Because what it was is it reminded me of my desire to be an individual, and it reminded me of why I avoided all this stuff to begin with. Because I, you know, I was talking to my friend about this where I was like, you know, I avoided certain things because I didn't want to be like the people who I thought those things represented. But in doing that, I gave I gave myself a disservice because the ideas had nothing to do with the people. And once I accepted the ideas, it turns out I love the people. 
even though they're not me, even though I might actually want nothing to do with them, I actually love those people because in a strange roundabout way, the fact that I didn't want to be like those people forced me to go down my own route. And even though my own route might have taken me back to the same place that I would have started out at if I had just gone down the the obvious path anyway, the fact that I got there in my own way affirmed to me that that was the right path all along, if that makes sense. That where I ended up, even if it was the same place I could have started at, if I just said, oh, I want to be like these people. The fact that I still ended up there by going my own way, by hacking away at the bushes with my own machete, that told me that, oh, that is the right place. And I had to get there in this roundabout way that might seem like a waste of time. But I actually learned a whole lot in doing that. And now I'm back here. And I love that those people, you know, gave me the incentive to do that because I didn't want to be like them. I know it probably sounds really wacky, but it's the truth. So much of what we do in life is not about the ideas. I mean, like the examples I always use on this show and, you know, I think they're the best examples I have are God and love. And even though I could express love to my loved ones... The idea of some sort of universal love was not something I ever wanted to admit or or talk about, or even feel for that matter, which is really silly. God, too. But the problem was, is that I let the ideas of love and God, which I had no problem with, I, I don't think I've ever had a problem with what those words represent as ideas. I've never actually had a problem with love. I've never been anti-love. And I've never actually been anti-God. But I didn't want to accept those words, and I didn't want to accept those ideas, because I felt like those ideas had been hijacked, those words and ideas had been hijacked by people that I didn't want to be like. And that's funny, that we let there, there's this roadblock, there's this barrier, and so often it is people, because that's what we, that's our currency. We ourselves are people, and the biggest roadblock is often other people. It always is. So it's funny to me that I was so put off by certain types of people, or what I, and who knows if my impression of them was even right. But on a visceral level, I was so put off by certain types of people, certain categories of people, Christians, Buddhists, spiritual people, New Age people, that I didn't accept the ideas that they were just one small part, you know, they were just one small group of people who, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, just there's just one small group of people talking and thinking about an idea that is far larger than anything... Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to explain this. Point being, like, those people don't represent the idea. <laughs> it's, I think that's the simplest way to put it. Those people, even if they're talking about an idea, they don't represent the idea. Yet they do. And you have to learn to accept that they are 
just dealing with that idea on their own terms, whether you agree with them, disagree with them, whether you care about the decoration. But anyway, last night, like trying to watch this video of this monk talking to a crowd of people in a Buddhist Sangha, I was just like, I don't like this audience. And I didn't end up watching it. I ended up like, you know, I ended up uh, moving on because he was going to talk about like how to use mindfulness to raise children. And I was like, okay, I really don't need this. Not that I wouldn't learn something from it, but I was just like, yeah, I don't think this is what I want to be watching right now. And part, but there are times where I would like, there are totally times in the last few years where I would watch that video, even though it's intended for parents. Like, even though the crowd of people who are watching this are people that make me go, oh, I don't want to be like them at all. I would still let the good ideas, there are inevitably good ideas in whatever that guy was going to say. I know it. I know that that guy was going to say things that I could use. Even if I'd already heard him, even if I thought I'd already heard him, I know that that monk was going to say things to those people, even if it was just specifically about kids that I would potentially be able to use for myself. You know, I know that that was the case. And there are times where I'd go, yeah, let that idea travel across that chasm. Even though I have this visceral disgust for the way those people look, even though I, I don't, I, I can't even hear the word mindfulness lately without rolling my eyes. All that said, let the good ideas in that guy's talk travel across that chasm, that chasm of disinterest, that chasm of disgust. Let his ideas travel across it, because if an idea can travel across that chasm, that's a really strong idea. There are times where I would totally watch that. But I think right now, not feeling like I'm wanting, not feeling like I'm seeking something made me say, this would just be a trial for me. This would just be a test to see if I could watch it. And I don't want to do that right now because I'm not looking for anything. But it was funny to me because I, I forget about that feeling. It's there. I know it's always there, but I forget about that feeling of like looking at this audience of people. And what I saw was sort of a fetish. And I was thinking about this recently as somebody who pays attention to some of these things, who listens to, you know, spiritual lectures, the fetish of a calm voice, where there's a certain calm voice that spiritual speakers have and you can tell that, that that tone of voice, that calmness, is one of the big draws because people want to go hear somebody talk in that voice. You think about like someone like Eckhart Tolle, however you say his name. Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle. You go see somebody like Eckhart Tolle because you like his calm voice and you like the fact that he looks like a little forest creature. People do, though. One of the reasons a guy like Eckhart Tolle, 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 the Ayatollah Eckhart Tolle. Ayatollah Eckhart Tolle. One of the reasons that guy's so popular, and he has a lot of great stuff to say. I mean, he's a great example of what I mean, where I've read things by him. Like, he's not somebody that I gravitate toward. You know, he, he's on, like, Oprah. He's on, he, you know, he's like a guy who goes on Oprah. Oprah Winfrey. He goes on shows like that, and he talks to, like, housewives about mindfulness or something. And thank God he does. You know, you know, I think it's great that he does that. But point being, on an aesthetic level, that's not necessarily somebody that I feel drawn to. 
You know, I talk about Alan Watts on this show, and I love Alan Watts because I often feel like this was made for me. And I know it's not made for me, and that makes it even more amazing. But you have people like Eckhart Tolle, and like housewives like to listen to him, and he talks in a very calm voice, a cute little foreign calm voice. He seems very peaceful. And he talks about how when you just let go, you just feel life. Let the silence creep into the gaps. And that's the communication. I don't. I don't know what he says. Um, but uh, you know, it, you know, people like that sort of calmness, and it's a fetish. Because the same sort of person who fetishizes that sort of performative calmness, and I don't mean that as a, a criticism, but it is performative. There is something performative about talking in that sort of calm, enlightened voice. And when the opportunity comes, you just let it. You don't reject it. You close your eyes and you listen. Take everything in and recognize that everything is really just nothing. But it's so full of something and it's beautiful. You know, people fetishize that kind of talk where, whereas it's like me, like peace for me. If you want to talk about peace, P-E-A-C-E, it's yelling. It's dynamic. Sometimes it screams. You know, it, it does though. It really does. And I think that's why someone like Alan Watts appeals to me because not because he's aggressive. Like Alan Watts, you know, there's a certain fetish to Alan Watts. I mean, he, he's an intelligent, sharp British guy. And he's old-timey. You know, he, he existed decades ago. So it's like he, he has like a slightly old-timey way of talking. But there's a dynamic, there, there's a dyna, dyna, there's dynamite. There's, there's something dynamic about the way he talks, though, where he's not just talking very calmly. You know, he, he's sharp. He cuts to the bone. And that's why that appeals to me. But I wouldn't expect that, appeal to, that to appeal to everybody. You know, and that's a fetish unto its own right of like hearing somebody talk that way. And not a sexual fetish. Although maybe for some people. But for me, when I say a fetish, I just mean it's like something that appeals to you in a very specific way. And for some people, like when they're learning about enlightenment and spirituality and mindfulness, they want somebody to communicate that to them in a very calm voice with lots of spaces between what they say so that you can reflect while you're listening. You know, the, the people like that, and I, I don't fault them for it, and I, sometimes I'm in the mood for that. Sometimes I'm in the mood for that. But it's like, for me, it's like, I like things to be a little more dynamic. I like things to be a little more unpredictable. Because to me, that's more honest. That's nature. That's life. 
nature and life are a little more unpredictable. There are dynamics to it. I mean, I think the same thing goes for music, you know, where it's like somebody's like, I'm going to listen to relaxing music. So they're going to put on like some like new age ambient music. And that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I don't know, because I don't want to come across like I'm criticizing calmness or something silly like that. But it's like you can see where there's a certain audience out there. And if they're going to listen to somebody talk about a certain sort of subject matter, they want that person to embody. They want that person to basically embody that, but in a very performative way. And there's nothing wrong with performance. This show is a performance. This isn't me. Like the way I talk on this show is not while there are elements of me. Like I certainly don't talk to people I know like this because they would kill me. They would slit my throat. You know, I would never talk to people completely like this. So there's something performative about this show because it's doing, I'm doing something very specific. I'm doing a podcast. So of course, like I'm going to have a certain style of doing that. It's a performance. It's a creative exercise in its own way. Does that mean everything I'm saying is insincere? No, just, that's just most of it. But, uh, you know, it's the same thing with like somebody who does this sort of performative calmness. Where it's performative, that doesn't mean it sucks. It just means that you have to recognize that it's a performance. And for me, I'm a little too aware of that performance sometimes to want to listen to somebody who's calm. And maybe that person, like maybe for a housewife who has screaming kids around, hearing, you know, some speaker talk in a very calm voice about mindfulness is exactly what they need. But it's still a fetish. It's still a performance. But anyway, um, it's nice to feel like, well, what's interesting is, is I don't feel great. Like when I say like, I don't feel like I'm seeking anything right now. I don't feel great is the thing. Like my head feels foggy. My sleeping schedule is is extremely bizarre and off. While some of the just electricity that was shooting through my veins and causing insomnia and worry and terror a couple weeks ago, well, that's subsided a bit, a lot, a bit, a lot. While that while that has subsided, I don't feel necessarily great. I don't feel the best I've ever felt. So that's an interesting combo to not feel like I'm at my best because you think about like saying like, oh, I don't I'm not seeking anything. I'm not seeking any kind of spiritual knowledge right now. I'm not seeking any kind of epiphany. I'm not looking to be entertained by synchronicity. To say that, but to like not be coming from a place of I'm at my best because you think like, oh, I feel perfect. I don't need anything because that's something you, you associate like if you don't need anything spiritually, you have this association that, oh, that must be some sort of perfection. And that's not where I'm at. I don't feel like I'm perfect at all right now. I feel actually incredibly imperfect right now. Yet I'm not looking for anything to fix that. And that's, I think, what I'm getting at here is that it's like, even though I feel incredibly imperfect right now, 
And not on a self-esteem level, not on a pride level. I don't feel low about myself, but just to feel like kind of busted up. Kind of busted up, you know, to kind of feel that way. And then, but then to not be looking for something external, especially not something spiritual to throw in the right ingredients to, you know, untwist my soul or whatever it is you look for. Yet I'm incredibly open to that. Like if that happens, heck yeah. And I mean, I've had the experience, I've talked about this before. I consider it a form of synchronicity because it's literally synchronized. It's not necessarily like meaningful coincidences happening all the time, but it is. It, it certainly could be described that way. But it's this thing that happens every now and again with me where I'll be listening to shows or podcasts while I'm reading. And while I'm doing that, the words that the people on the shows are saying are matching up perfectly with what I'm reading as I read it. And not words like the, not words that you would expect. But like, for example, I've been reading about the mafia a lot lately. Like I, I go on kicks where I'm doing a lot of mafia research. I was reading a book by a guy, John Dickey. There's a British author named John Dickey. It's weird how he was, his last name is uh, a reference to male genitalia. It's weird how the British people do that. They named him after a, a genital. <laughs> John Dickey. Um, but I was reading John Dickey, who, who's a really great author about the mafia and organized crime. And uh, I've been reading some other things, like uh, Informer Journal, just some different things I'm into, some various stuff online. And what's weird is as I'm reading that, I'm listening to podcasts that have nothing to do, you know, some of them, but mostly have nothing to do with that subject matter. And I'll be reading something and I'll read, I'll get to the word association. And then right as I get to that word, somebody on a podcast says association. Like I was listening to something about psychology or sociology or something. And, uh, you know, the podcast said the word association right as I read the word association and that's, that happened a bunch in the last couple of days. And it's always weird when that happens. And I don't think about it. Like, I don't, I'm just aware of it. You can't not be aware of it. I don't try to say like, oh, this is a sign. Because the synchronicity itself is all you need. Because that was my realization about synchronicity is that it's reminding you or maybe teaching you, if you don't already know, that everything is connected and whole. You don't have to focus on the individual instance of synchronicity itself and say, oh, well, clearly it's trying to tell me this. Because that's what Buddhism teaches you about not being attached to those things, about seeing those as just one more illusion in the greater illusory phenomenon that is the wholeness. So you don't, you don't sit there and go, hmm, I wonder why that pod cursed synced up in in a weird way not like every word i mean it's not crazy here but it's like enough to where you notice it but it's like it's weird that that podcast or that youtuber show synced up with with some random thing i was reading about organized crime and you're allowed to be excited by that you're allowed to be you're allowed to find it weird 
You're allowed to do anything, actually. But it, it's important to remember that, like, that might not be the point. The point isn't to be like, clearly these things are connected. Clearly these two things I'm paying attention to are connected in some way. Of course they're connected because you're reading them and listening at the same time. You are the connection. And maybe that's what the synchronicity is all about. It's reminding you that you, as an individual, are connected to the whole. And in that moment, this thing you're listening to and this thing you're reading are syncing up at times with highly specific words. And you're not schizophrenic. So what's the explanation? Schizophrenia would be a great explanation if I had it. Instead, it's just there's no explanation. And it's a form of synchronicity. And it happens to me now and again. Not all the time. I don't invent it to make myself feel cool. I don't go, oh, hey, hey, girls. Hey, girls. Did you know that sometimes when I'm listening to Pottercasters and, uh, and I'm reading about organized crimer, that uh, the words sync up? Do you want to look at my dicky? You know, it's like, at no point am I feeling that way. At no point am I trying to impress somebody. I mean, I rarely mention it. I don't mention it to anybody. Maybe one person, I'll, I'll be like, oh, hey, that thing is happening again. Because I've talked to Miles about that, where Miles has experienced that. So I know that at least one human being on this planet that I know experiences that same thing sometimes, where words sync up with the thing he's listening to, in a way that isn't just coincidence or chance. But for me, like I know that I don't need to read any further into it. I just have to say, oh, hey, that's a form of synchronicity. Are those things connected? Well, they're connected because I'm the connection, because I'm paying attention to both of those things. I am aware of both of those things. Does that mean that everything that I pay attention to and everything I'm aware of is going to do that? No, it doesn't. And if you go through life and you're experiencing synchronicity all the time, you might be crazy. I don't know. Or you might be on the right path. I don't, it, it's hard to say. It depends on how you react. Because I think people who do have legitimate mental conditions, I think they do experience real phenomena in the form of synchronicity. I've known schizophrenic people. I've had a friend who might very well be diagnosed that way. And he experiences synchronicity all the time, but I think a part of it is how he responds to it. I think, like, what makes the mental condition diagnosable is that it seems to consume him. And he weaves those patterns and synchronicities into something that he... that he. I don't even know. I don't even want to say too much about that. I, I just think that, you know, I think the difference between something like schizophrenia and um, not having schizophrenia sometimes is just how you react to certain phenomena that we all experience, how you acknowledge that phenomena, and who you talk to about it. Because if I were to talk to everybody about what I'm talking about right now, I probably would sound schizo schizophrenic schizophrenic. I probably would sound crazy, which is why you can't just tell everybody about it. It's why you can't go into work. It's why you can't call every family member and tell them, you wouldn't believe that this Pottercaster, 
and this uh, organized crimer PDF <laughs> are uh, <laughs> that's that's the thing is like I'm reading PDFs, uh, I'm reading some PDFs, um, but uh, you know it's like trying to tell everybody you know how these things are syncing up. It's like keep it to yourself, don't mention it. Literally, don't mention it unless you think that it's somebody who's receptive, unless it's somebody who's willing to listen to you on your Friday night night school podcast. Um, but those are little things that happen. And it's very easy to spin your wheels about those individual instances. And it's fun to. Like, if you've experienced synchronicity with another person, and if you haven't, man, like, it's better than sex. You know, it, it's an amazing thing to experience that. Because one, you know you're not crazy. One, it's it's something that is completely unexpected. Did I already say one? I think I said, I think there were two ones there, but there's only one. That's the thing about the wholeness is you realize one's the only number, man. One is the only number. Um, but uh, you, uh, you know, when you experience synchronicity with other people, you know, it, it's something where you know you're not crazy. It's incredibly fun because it's something that's like completely unexpected. It's not like watching a movie with somebody. It's not something that you decided to go do together and you're both going to like be like, wow, that was a cool movie. I didn't know that the guy was the the boyfriend to the mom in the casket, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, whatever it is movies reveal in plot lines these days. Oh, I didn't know that it was the mom's boyfriend's brother in the casket at the end, you know, um, synchronicity is something you can't possibly create or manufacture deliberately like that. So it's really fun to experience them with other people, unless they reject it, which that gets back to what I was talking about at the beginning of, you know, rejecting fate or accepting fate. You know, it, it can be kind of disappointing when you experience synchronicity with somebody else and their response is no. But you can't change them. You can't force them because trying to force them to go with it, trying to force them to find it cool Forcing them to acknowledge it is not going to get what you, get you what you want because it scares people. That's the thing is synchronicity, certain phenomena scares people. And of course it does because it, it, it defies what we think of as normal reality. And people want to rationalize it. They want to understand it. Or they reject it. Or they rebel against it. And for me, like, I was always open to it. And I always loved synchronicity. But it was when I realized that it, if nothing else, it's a simple communication of the wholeness. It's a reminder that every possible thing can be connected. Especially when it comes to trivia. Especially when it comes to data. Because that's kind of what synchronicity is. It's like letting you know that data is all part of the same database. Every individual line of data is part of the same database. Therefore, it's all connected. So I've been experiencing that lately. So it's, it's not like I'm closed off. Words are matching up with spoken words. And uh, tomorrow they might not. Today, they haven't so far. 
oh no, life sucks because my podcasts aren't syncing up with my PDFs anymore. No, it's like you, you can't be attached to that. You can't be hungry for that. You can't be a synchronicity hunter. It's a good way to not experience them at all. And I experience them less than I used to. I experience them less than I used to. And, uh, you know, those are nice, though, because they come to you. It's always nice when something like that comes to you and you can choose to react. You can choose to respond. You can decide to say nothing. You can put them in a journal. You can do nothing at all if that's what's best. And oftentimes it is. I've found that oftentimes it is best just to say, huh. Yep. I think just, I think the only thing that I really try to do when I experience those things now is just be like, yep. Uh huh. I think you want to give those an affirmative response. Because again, like I was saying, sometimes you'll experience those sorts of things with people and their response is no, 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 no. And you just go, oh, that's a bummer. But that itself is fate. You know, that itself is a form of fate because you, you go, okay, now I have a choice of like trying to like force this person to think about this thing they don't want to think about that we both just experienced. And that's not going to get you what you want. And why do you want anything? Why do you want anything from that? So that's kind of fate unto itself, is having to deal with the fact that someone you're with doesn't see things the way you do, or they don't want to. And that seems to be the, the source of everything again, like I mentioned earlier, where you know, where it's like you can't even accept certain ideas, you can't even think about certain ideas like God or love or any number of other things, because you associate it with a certain type of person. So much of our roadblock, our individual roadblocks and our larger collective roadblock, so much of it comes down to just other people. And that's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing how, much, how many of our problems come down to the fact that we just can't accept other people. We don't want to be like other people or we do want to be like certain people. You know, so much of it revolves around that that we forget about the ideas themselves. And uh, it's funny, too, because, like, being in the place I'm at and having a friend who's going down his road, he's reading a lot about spiritual subject matter, he's experiencing a lot right now, and that's exciting. It's exciting when you know somebody is feeling that. And even though you don't feel it, if you've been through that, if you've experienced spiritual ecstasy, spiritual crisis for that matter, I don't think those things are very far off from each other. You know, it's exciting to know somebody else is going through it. But it's interesting when you're not. And, and, and to not feel like you're missing out or something. Because if you've never gone through that and somebody you know is either in a spiritual a state of spiritual ecstasy or a spiritual crisis. And I would say a couple of weeks ago, I would, I felt like I was in a spiritual crisis for sure. And for, fortunately it was short or maybe unfortunately, sometimes it's good to go through that for a while. But it's like, if you've never been through that feeling yourself, or if you've never identified that feeling in yourself and somebody else seems to be going through it, you almost think they're lying. You get skeptical, cynical about it. But if you've been through it, you know what that feels like. And when somebody else is going through it, you're not like, it's not like somebody's getting high on your favorite drug without you. 
It's more like it's the wholeness, the fact that somebody else is going through this thing that in your own way you've experienced and can relate to almost feels like you're experiencing it too. Like what my friend has been describing to me, first of all, doesn't make me think something's wrong with you because he's very clear-headed. He seems very grounded about it. He doesn't seem like he's having some sort of psychotic episode, which people have. You know, again, like I was saying, like some people's mental impairment causes them to handle those things very poorly and scarily. In his case, I don't feel that way. And But what he's been describing to me doesn't make me go, God, I wish that I was going through that. It makes me say, oh, I, I, I can't necessarily say I'm feeling what he's feeling, but I've felt something similar to what he's describing. And I don't feel like I'm not getting, uh, you know, my own bump of it. Oh, you're all doing cocaine and you're not giving me any? You don't feel that way about it. That's the amazing thing about this. And that's why it's different from drugs. That's why it's different than, like, things that give you material pleasure. Because when somebody else is experiencing it, and you're not, you don't feel deprived. You don't feel like you're missing out. There is no fear of missing out. That whole, God, that's awful. FOMO. I don't know if people use that anymore, but that was like something that came, like some genius, some genie was like, oh, there's a new thing because of social media and it's called FOMO. It's called fear of missing out. Oh, that thing that people have felt forever. FOMO. But uh, there's no FOMO with this sort of thing. You're excited for them. And that's a form of that wholeness. That's a form of that connection. Because think about how often you don't feel that way in life. Think about how often you feel like somebody else is getting a better deal. Somebody else got the good drugs and I got the bad drugs. Oh, he got he got his drink for cheaper than mine. Oh, the bartender gave him a better deal for his whiskey soda. Oh, he asked Susie to the dance. I wanted to ask Susie to the dance. You know, think about how often your mind goes to that place. Think about how often you get jealous, consumed with pettiness. You know, I've never been a particularly jealous person, but I have been a petty person. And think about how often you go to that place in your mind and simply not feeling that way is a connection. Simply not feeling jealousy, envy, or any or, or disdain, disgust, whether it's the guy driving in traffic, like not hating that guy for doing that. That's connection. It doesn't mean you should sacrifice yourself. It doesn't mean you should have no self-interest. But it's kind of it's kind of what I've said before on here, where it's like so often in life, it's like we are thieves jealous of another thief's loot. You don't want to be a thief jealous of another thief's loot because you're a thief too, and you can't forget what you are. And you're a thief from birth because you were given life. 
And that kind of feels like you took something. And you should treat it that way. You should treat life like you stole something and the owner said, it's okay, you can keep it. Just take really good care of it. And instead of being like, well, I'm jealous of what that other thief got. Don't be a thief jealous of another thief's loot. Remember that you were born a thief and the thing you stole has now been forgiven with the stipulation that you take as good a care of it as you can and maybe even try to understand how it works. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 